Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, January 27th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, private school financial aid bill is now state law. Meat gets a second chance. The medical malpractice debate is back. And a state snafu has local government scrambling. Hello, I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me today, once again, is the full roster. We have Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Good day. Also, Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Hello, Caleb. Good afternoon, Aaron. Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times is here. Greetings, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. We have Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Hello, Jared. Aaron, uh, all we are saying is give me a chance. You know? <laughs> I think that was the initial uh, uh, right of that song. Uh, uh, and lastly, but not leastly, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Hello, Todd. Hello. I think I think Linda McCartney waited on that "give me the chance" thing because <laughs> true she 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 wouldn't have been down with that. That's how it got changed. That's how it got changed from meat to peace. Linda stepped in. Uh, All right. First up this week, if you blinked, you missed it. Governor Kim Reynolds' private school financial aid bill is now state law. State lawmakers passed the bill on a marathon Monday. And the very next day, mere hours after debate finished, and just two weeks after the bill was introduced, Reynolds put her pen to the paper. So starting now, all 2023, 2024, uh, check me, guys, that starts immediately, right, for the next school year. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So starting for the 2023-24 school year, kindergartners and all public school students plus some private school students from low-income families are eligible for a roughly 7,600 annual state-funded payment that can be put toward private school schooling. And that program will gradually expand over four years, at which point every K-12 student in Iowa will be eligible for that state funding. It's an estimated $345 million annual program at full implementation. Uh, Caleb, uh, this was your first time covering a long, late-into-the-night legislative debate on a highly visible and contentious bill. Uh, uh, d- describe what that experience was like for you and uh, and also what uh, – Stood out to you during the debate. Uh, anything anybody said, or how the the voting unfolded? Yeah. Um, first reaction is that I needed to bring more snacks. Um, I had to make a couple trips <laughs> to the vending machine. Um, but uh, rookie, rookie mistake. Yeah. If there was one. Right. Always have the bag full of snacks. Yep. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely an interesting uh, debate to, to watch. I was. Um, you know, on the House floor for, for the whole, for the House debate. And, um, you know, you, we had kind of heard most of the arguments or all the arguments that Democrats were going to be making when they um, uh, were up there. But, you know, a couple of the ones that maybe I feel like they focused on a little more um, on the actual night of the debate were, were the um, concern about uh, the students with disabilities and the fact that private schools um, don't have any requirement to uh, accept students with disabilities and um, they kind of tried to reframe they flipped the script a little bit and said you know this is school choice but it's the choice of the school it's the school administrator's choice to accept whatever kids they want um so that was i felt like it was ki- a kind of a new argument um and then uh also the republicans uh, a newish argument that you saw um maybe not a new but something that was more uh articulated that you saw um during debate was um both in the senate and the house some republicans 
um, you know, brought up the school choice as a reaction to um, what they considered to be, you know, uh, too far left uh, ideas in public schools. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're taking um, stuff about, you know, LGBTQ issues and, and COVID policies and, and those kinds of things. So they said, you know, uh, tried to pit that as a, as a um, reason for why parents need this. Um, so that was an interesting thing to see as well. Uh, and then just like the way the actual vote uh, ran out, um, you know, we, we had a good idea that this wasn't going to be a unanimous vote in the House um, or the Senate, really. But, uh, you know, looking at the maps that the, the Gazette very um, well put together was uh, it's interesting to see, you know, Republicans who voted no in the House um, concentrated down in the southwest area of the state that very, you know, and then the northeast, both very kind of rural areas and areas that, uh, you know, the ones that we talked to, at least, they said, you know, their school administrators, their constituents were um, concerned about how that might affect them. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting uh, to watch that play out and uh, excited for, for more as the session goes on. Yeah, it, it was it was an interesting debate. It was a long debate as we talked about. Uh, God bless them. They couldn't go at the same time. The House had to go first and then the Senate. Uh, I think Senate Democrats had a little bit to say about that, uh, which is why we were there until after midnight instead of about eight or nine o'clock. But, uh, but look, it was a big bill too. And um, I understand opponents uh, wanting to get their say, especially given uh, the somewhat expedited process uh, by which the bill was run, as we've talked about in, in uh, past uh, podcasts. Uh, and as I noted from the first day it was printed until the day it became state law was exactly two weeks, which is not, a lot of time for a bill of that magnitude. Um, Caleb mentioned the Gazette team put together a couple of really cool maps uh, showing how state lawmakers voted uh, by color coding their districts. Uh, you can check out those maps that are at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. I highly endorse, uh, if, if you're interested in that topic, uh, checking that out. It's kind of a visual representation of of how folks voted. Um, and <laughs> frankly, it also shows... Uh, the small geographic area where there are areas where there are uh, elected Democrats in the state house uh, right now too. Um, I'll, and I'll try to remember to tweet them out too. So uh, if you follow me on the Twitters, uh, you can get that link there. Um, Jared, uh, one of the things I noticed uh, from looking at that Senate map is there was one Northeast, uh, sorry, Northwest Iowa Senator among the rare few Republicans who voted against the bill was was that the only one up your, your neck of the way in the in the house or in the senate okay uh and he's one of our freshmen do you know uh senator uh evans right yes um you- and yeah i actually talked to him uh on the phone yesterday yeah he's a freshman uh state senator from aurelia and he was one of three republicans in the senate to do so the others were um tom shipley down in Nottaway and charlie mcclintock over in albernet um and um lynn evans is a former uh superintendent for the um alta arulia school district uh up here in northwest iowa and he also uh has done teaching at uh, buena vista university over in um, storm lake and um he said uh in his objection almost from the jump was that there wasn't a provision for students with special learning needs he said he really needed clearer language in the bill regarding that and said um, if you want true um, parent choice a student shouldn't be discriminated against 
based on learning needs. Um, so that that was his uh, sticking point. He said basically from the jump that was his sticking point. He told um, other people in the caucus that that was his uh, issue, and he said because he was upfront about that, he didn't necessarily feel any pressure to like vote yes anyway. Um, I would note too though that he did say he thought that other aspects of the bill were good, like. Uh, he said that the bill now law would make schools more flexible and then it could make public schools more competitive. So though he took issue with the um, special learning needs aspect, he was fine with some of the other aspects of the bill. Um, and as uh, fate would have it, he's not the only legislator from around here who has a background in education. I talked to another one of our uh, uh, state lawmakers uh who has a history in education and that's bob henderson from uh, sioux city who's also a uh, a freshman rep and uh he voted for the bill and he uh also talked about it you know in the flexibility aspect and i asked him about the funding concerns for the future and he said he wasn't concerned about that um and i also asked him about the possibility of you know private schools turning around and raising tuitions uh with the passage of the bill um, and he said he didn't think schools would do that because it could um, paint them in a bad light. So uh, talk to two different uh, legislators from around here with two very different votes, but uh, both with uh, backgrounds in education. Yeah, that's interesting. And the 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 Senator Evans, what he talked about, um, the, this kind of students that private schools can admit, that was a major uh, – you didn't hear that a lot, obviously, from Republicans uh, – um, but uh, the Democrats who are in opposition to this talked a lot about that, about when you're setting aside taxpayer funding, you know, when you set that aside for public schools, that's with the assumption that they literally accept everyone who comes to their doors. And, and that's part of their opposition to this kind of thing is you're giving taxpayer funding to a school that can pick and choose which students it, it wants to uh, accept and educate. And that. I, uh, I talked to J.D. Scholten yesterday, too, and that was one thing that he talked about quite a bit was the that issue with private schools and students with special learning needs. Yeah. Um, Todd, I'm going to move on to another topic uh, with you. But uh, before we move on, I feel like I should give you a chance. You've uh, had a lot to say about this uh, proposal in the short time it was alive. Uh, If there's any closing thoughts you had on this now state law or if there's anything you've written this past week or plan to write that you want readers to watch out for. Well, and a hell of a lot of good it did. (laughs) I, I guess I've kind of focused on this idea that by creating this program, which you mentioned is going to be $345 million once it's fully implemented, and that is an estimate. It could be less than that, but it could be more. Uh, you're basically going to you know, significantly shrink the budget pie that's available for all the other stuff, stuff the state does, and uh, and that includes funding public schools. I mean, the governor did this, wanted this, and at the same time gave schools, you know, proposed a 2.5% uh, increase in state funding, which I think according to the Legislative Service Agency is, is about $82 million, which pales in comparison to the $107 million price tag year one for the for the private school educational scholarships. So they're already sort of making a budget choice that, public schools don't like and and private school school choice proponents do and you know if you look deeper into her budget 
you know, she and what they've been doing in recent years is basically they have available revenue under the 99% expenditure limitation, which I'm sure everyone knows and has memorized. They, you know, everyone always knows those little those little budget quirks, but they're they're not allowed to spend more than 99% of revenues estimated in December by the revenue estimating conference. And so they get this number and then they basically spend quite a bit less than that. I think her budget spends about 81, 82% of available funds. She ends with a two point or a $2 billion surplus and like 650 million of that is going into the taxpayer relief fund, which will bring that balance to like $3.4 billion is going to be in that fund to cover the cost of tax cuts. So the reason I went through all that, all those weeds is that you can just see priority wise, tax cuts are a huge priority. That's siphoning available money out of the budget. This uh, school choice bill is going to siphon money. And then there are all the, all the competition for things that we always see for the budget. And on top of that, you, you know, Republicans have basically gone on sort of a vendetta against public schools, arguing that they're, you know, sort of these liberal indoctrination centers with pronoun lessons and drag shows and, and whatever. So they, so the schools have to sort of try to overcome that rhetoric and they're going to face more action during this session, targeting, targeting that sort of stuff. Uh, and if, you know, they use school transparency on some of these things, th- those come with a, a cost as well. So I just, I think what's going to, I don't, you know, most of the states that have these ESAs, the vast majority of ESAs are held by students that are already in public schools. So it's not going to be so much a huge competition for students. It's just going to be a competition for those funds. And I think the way the deck is stacked, public schools are going to have a hard time getting more than sort of low or stagnant funding and that's that's what's going to have the impact in the in the long run yeah and to to segue i guess into our next topic um i find it somewhat interesting and and democrats also made this argument that um republicans uh have talked the last couple of weeks about um entitlement programs and how entitlement programs are, are squeezing um the state budget yet um, they pass what they argue is now a new entitlement uh, program with these education savings accounts um, because unlike um, previous proposals, unlike the proposal that we saw from the governor last year, um, it doesn't include income restrictions, right? So now you've created this universal um, you know, so-called school choice plan where, you know, families with all families with K-12 students are now, you know, eligible for uh, these education savings accounts to, to send their um, children to, uh, to, to private school. Well, I was just going to say and kind of kind of bring those, that all together. I think I think the, the funding thing is absolutely a, a valid and interesting point. And, and I was talking to another a reporter up at the Statehouse uh, as things were unfolding Monday night. And I was kind of surprised, uh, honestly, that uh, I didn't hear that argument made by more Democrats, especially in the House, if they thought there was a chance that they could still peel off enough votes to, to kill the bill. Maybe, and maybe they didn't. Maybe they knew uh, by the time it got to the floor that the that the, the support was there. But I thought that fiscal argument was one, if, if you're talking about, like I get all the, the, the points and the arguments that Democrats make on, on this topic, but if you were thinking specifically in terms of how do I change Republicans' minds? Uh, you would, I, I kind of thought number one would be the fiscal responsibility argument, and and Todd kind of and 
and Tom have both listed the, uh, the highlights. Um, uh, this is adding almost $350 million annually, if not more, like Todd said, it's a projection, could be bigger, of new spending, which also, side note, says to everybody else who's been asking for increases, uh, you know, all the agencies and departments and programs that have been stuck with status quo funding over the last decade, uh, and they've been told we just don't have the money to do that, um, now suddenly there's $350 million every year available for this. So, so as Todd says, that, it, that, that definitely shows priorities. Um, but then looking down, down the road, sorry, sorry, Tom, just real quick. And then looking down the road too, is the other part of this is those tax it case, uh, those tax cuts are coming. We're going to have $2 billion less in the budget every year. Um, my best guess is that that question was asked and, whether it's Pat Grassley telling this or Craig Paulson in the, in the state revenue department or governor Reynolds staff, they must be being told that, Hey, don't worry about it. The money's still going to be there down the road because I would think that that would be a bigger concern uh, than it, than it seemed to be among Republicans. Yeah. I was, I was just going to add that, you know, remember house Democrats last year, you know, were pushing for a, uh, uh, 5% increase in um, state supplemental aid that uh, equated to, you know, roughly what, 300 million, 305 million dollars. And Republicans said, nope, sorry, we, we can't afford that. You know, we, we can't incorporate it in that budget. And then surprise, surprise, um, when it comes to education savings accounts, um, you know, they say, no, there's, there's absolutely enough money um, in, in the budget um, for this program that, um, according to the fiscal note uh, put up by the um, nonpartisan legislative services agency, estimates, and again, you know, that it's a conservative estimate, um, you know, it, it could potentially be larger, but estimating that, you know, um, once we get to full implementation in, in year four, that that would be a $345 million annual expense. I um I had a question for um Todd because I noticed this uh, this was just a couple hours ago today uh, Friday that um, even now um, Governor Reynolds's uh, account was tweeting out uh, education is not a zero sum game we can invest in students provide parents choice and have strong public schools and I'm wondering since it's already signed into law why you think there's still some of this selling of the the bill now that it's become a law like you wouldn't necessarily need to do that under other circumstances, would you? Yeah. You know, I, I think she's, you know, part of it is she's trying to still counter the, the arguments against it uh, because, well, you know, there's politicians like to be right and like to, you know, say their opponents are wrong, but yeah, I mean, they're going to have to continue to sell this because I mean, regardless of all the things they said about their mandate, to do stuff like this. They know deep down that this isn't really the, something of this size and scope isn't what they ran on. People who are paying attention are worried about it, especially in, in rural communities. And they lost some rural lawmakers there and not enough to make a difference. But I mean, so they still have a sales job to do. And they also know that when they get down to business of passing allowable growth, they're going to hear about this. Because, you know, if they do two and a half or two percent or something like that, they, they know it's going to look in relationship to what they did on on school choice to be like their, you know, like their sort of shortchanging public schools. Uh, and they'll, you know, they'll pull out the, we're, our, you know, school funding is at a record level. Well, 
you know, if you've got half a brain, you know, if you throw a nickel on the pile this year, that's a record compared <laughs> to last year. But, and also, you know, it's 40% of the budget, which it pretty much has been for the entire time I've been watching the legislature. I mean, that's usually goes somewhere between 40 and 50% somewhere in, in there, depending on which party's in power and which, you know, how much increase they get. So neither of those things are new, but, you know, it, but still, you know, school districts have said they want four or five percent just to keep things going with inflation. And and so that's going to be that's going to be a debate where Republicans get attacked on this issue again because of the, the large entitlement program they've created. And so I suppose they're they may be thinking about that also. And and that's coming up this week from what we're hearing is we're going to start seeing those proposals in legislative form and those those proposals start moving um, this coming week. Um, you mentioned that, Todd, and kind of talking about the history a little bit that I'm, I'm just before we move on real quick, I'm I want makes me want to throw in uh, for anybody out there listening uh, who's new to this here. Here is the essential nuts and bolts of how this has become um, an annual uh, debate and argument over school funding and Democrats say it's enough. Republicans say, Hey, what are you talking about? It's increased every year and it's at record highs. Um, a lot of times both of what they're saying is technically true. Here's what it boils down to. Uh, since the current funding formula was created back in early to mid seventies, right, Todd, it's, 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 it's been, it's been a while. Um, if you go back and look at, at each year for the longest time, from basically the mid-70s until 2010, that state supplemental aid, that general funding from the state increased around 4%, 5%, sometimes even a little bit higher, but rarely to never less than 4%. Like 4% was the baseline, and oftentimes it was more. Every year, like clockwork, from the mid-70s until 2010. And then uh, when Republicans won the House in 2010 and had at least one uh, leg of the, the trifecta up there, um, they started to hold the line a little bit more on spending on schools. And now we've had percent increases that have been anywhere from literally, like I think it was 0.5 or 1% one year uh, to where in a good year for schools and in, in a, in a big year, quote unquote, the, the increase is around two and a half, three percent. I don't think we've had a 4% increase uh, since 2010. I, I'd have to double check on that. But anyway, so, so that's, that's, that's what, you know, you're going to hear all the yelling back and forth uh, over this next week. And what's actually at the heart of that is that those annual increases forever in a day used to be 4% and above. And then over the last, we're up to a dozen years or so now, um, it's been in the zero to two to 3% range. And, and as Todd alluded to, schools say that that makes it tough on them because it doesn't keep up with the cost of doing business, of paying teachers, of running a school, of insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The collective bargaining thing um, is in, in there too. So, um, so that so that's the heart of that argument. Okay, moving on. Uh, so we can finally get to something else this week. Uh, <laughs> from one contentious bill to the next, uh, since that's essentially what House Republicans did this week. And, and speaking of competing um, sort of uh, priorities, just two days after passing that $345 million private school financial aid bill, House Republicans held the first legislative hearing on their proposal 
to place identity verification and work requirements on the low-income food assistance program known as SNAP or food stamps. Uh, so a brand new $345 million program in one hand. And on the other hand, uh, we got to cut back on, on food assistance. Um, <laughs> although <laughs> all that aside, Todd, the big headline here is meat is back on the table. <laughs> and I'm sure that's a relief to snap beneficiaries. And that move had everything to do with them in mind and nothing at all to do with the Iowa Farm Bureau or pork industries influence in this state, right? Yeah, I mean, Republicans, they get upset when, you know, Tom Vilsack's USDA talked about doing meatless Mondays one day a meatless week. Meatless Mondays, when we almost had meatless they, snap. They, they threatened to eat, you know, it was kind of a reverse hunger strike. They threatened to eat an 18-ounce porterhouse for every meal until the meatless Mondays were lifted, something like that. On a gas stove, uh, probably. Uh, a, yeah, a, oh, a, yeah. Just that cook it on an open fire in their Senate office or something like that, you know, just grab it by the bone and start gnawing on it. Uh, so, you know, so that doesn't surprise me. I think this was more of a, more of a, a situation you see occasionally, which is stupid, but people sign on to a bill without really knowing exactly what it does. I mean, it, you know, it looked like, Hey, we're going to crack down on these, you know, these lazy Food, recipient, food aid recipients, you know, most of whom are the disabled elderly and children, which is always a nice constituency to go after. Uh, but, you know, so they, they looked at that and, and found out that they had made a, a pretty bad mistake. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always nice to see lawmakers partially at least come to their senses, gives you some hope. But, you know, the bill is still not, you know, it's, it's still very harmful to people on SNAP. It sets up a whole series of bureaucratic hoops and tests and, and uh, changes that will be basically leave them in a, in a constant, you know, fight with the bureaucracy to stay eligible for the program. And some of them will be kicked out on a technicality, which I guess Republicans aren't concerned with. And second, you've got this asset test, which we don't have now, that would severely limit how much, you know, how much they could have in the bank if they wanted to have some emergency savings, if they wanted to do, you know, some things like that to prepare for possibilities. They, or a second vehicle in the home. Program. Second yeah. car. So yeah. if you've got one person working and then you've got a teenager who's driving himself to school, you got to get rid of the teenager's car and I guess, you know, ride the bus or something if that's available or hoof it, which seems... I mean, it would seem like that you're basically discouraging education. You're maybe discouraging someone from working because they don't have a good way to get there. Because as we know, in most cities in this state, there's either no public transportation or it doesn't, it, it isn't very useful. So, uh, yeah. So, and, you know, it, it, it always galls me when this stuff comes up because this is a Florida-based group that's pushing this and they go all over the country and, and try to get voters to vote against Medicaid expansion and try to get lawmakers to, to uh, you know, cut safety net programs all in the interest of, you know, bootstraps and able-bodied people getting to work, which the SNAP program, very, very few people are able-bodied adults without dependents. So, I mean, for all we know, this WIC language, it could have been in a model bill that this outfit gave to Iowa. Yeah. You know, trusted them. So, yeah, it's 
it's bad policy. I mean, they're just, they're going after people who are struggling. I mean, it's just, it, it's certainly not a problem that needs to be solved, but we're used to seeing them manufacture problems that need to be solved. So I guess that shouldn't be much of a surprise. Yeah. And, and I, I agree, Todd, I think you're exactly right that this was one of those cases where, um, a bill was produced and and people signed on to it before really uh, fully comprehending. And, and, and you're absolutely right that that this wouldn't be the first time that happened. Um, it, it's, and, and really that's not ultimately a big deal until it starts getting closer and closer to becoming law. Um, but the one thing I have to point out in this case is this is a little unique and maybe deserves a little more uh, scrutiny or, or um, you know, uh, pointed questions because this wasn't just some random bill. This is one that was published by House Republicans as one of their top legislative priorities for the session. They literally put it out amongst others in a press release. Um, it, it, it uh, you know, it has 39 sponsors on the bill, including the Speaker of the House, Pat Grassley. So even if that is true and we acknowledge that, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of names and a big priority uh, put on something that maybe people should have taken a little more time to look through and consider before they. Uh, well, and then I, I laughed pretty hard and geez, I wish I could remember which lawmaker it was. But they basically went on Twitter and said, "Hey, we're going to change the stop fear monger." I saw that, and I, I had a problem with that too. Yeah, that that was a pretty um, uh, a, a heck of a stance to take. I mean, my 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 guy, you put the bill out there, and your name's on it. It's not fear mongering to re- literally repeat what's in the bill. Stop reading our bills. Yeah, and, and yeah. Just because my name's on garbage doesn't mean. Oh, you, you're supposed to support that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it's a big assumption. I, I, I have bad news for people under the Golden Dome of Wisdom, but not every syllable that they utter makes it out to the great masses of Iowa. So not everybody knows that you had said that, that you were going to amend this bill. So, yeah, that was that was quite the take. Something um, always worth considering just as like a, a background kind of thing almost when talking about any of these issues that relate to low-income people. And there have been numerous studies about this, including one in 2015, that low-income people are better at spending their money hmm. wisely and capably than high-income people or even middle-income people. And I that's not at all the perception you see in everyday life right. or here in these discussions. And that's not at all a difficult thing to reason out, right? I mean, when you have fewer resources, you're going to be a lot more careful about how you use those resources. I mean, that that just makes that sounds like Iowa common sense to me, folks. Well, and they, these are, you know, the people that are going to be beyond the recipients that are going to be harmed by this or, or some people you think Republicans would listen to. I mean, they just went to, to the, you know, went to bat last year for the grocers and got the can, the bottle bill reformed. But can you imagine if you if you put a whole bunch of new restrictions on what folks can buy with snap cards, what a, what a burden that's going to be on, on grocery stores and, and workers having to tell people now you can't have this, now you can't have that. I mean, it's that that's, it's an administrative nightmare for one thing. And yeah. uh, it's, yeah, it's just. And I suppose just real quick before we move on, I'll ca- we should just catch up folks. If you hadn't been tuned into this, how this all started was it's a, it's a bill that house Republicans proposed uh, as a means of um 
what they're arguing is reining in costs and ensuring, um, uh, you know, reducing fraud and waste in, in food assistance, in SNAP and in, in food stamps. Um, and, and what they did was they started with a proposal that said the only eligible foods are what's in the WIC program, which is for expectant mothers and is a much shorter list of eligible foods. And it essentially cut out meat, uh, poultry, uh, fish, uh, any kinds of nuts, a lot of baking essentials like salt, pepper, flour, et cetera, just a, a, a spectacularly <laughs> reduced list. And, and uh, the backlash was uh, swift and vociferous, and, and they have since uh, backtracked on that proposal. And we haven't seen the actual legislation yet, but what they have pledged is coming is a much more uh, uh, reduced amount of restrictions to basically the, all they want to take out is um, candy and soda and within even a carve out for uh, zero calorie sodas would still be allowed. So we're, we're waiting to see that officially. I can't believe the corn syrup capital of America wants to take soda off of there. Uh, well, and the other hey, thing that's big that, aspartame getting involved. Yeah, right. Right there. That's uh, the one other thing we should mention is that a lot of this is basically directing the department of health and human services to seek a waiver from the federal government. Right. And the idea that the Biden administration is going to be down with some of this stuff is, yeah. is pretty far fetched. I think they, I, I, they, they tried to get a candy and soda exemption before I think, and were turned down. So yeah, Feds control this program, so there's, you know, they can only Iowa can only do this stuff if they get permission, and I doubt they will. Yeah, that's the other thing about this. At the end of the day, this is, I think, essentially a planting the flag thing, right? Because as you said, there's little to no chance that the uh, federal administration, and it seems even less likely the Biden federal administration, will approve any of this. All right, moving on again, man. We have so much to talk about, and so much to talk about all that we talk about. Um, elsewhere in the state house, bills uh, started moving this week uh, that would cap non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases at $1 million. And, and if you're not familiar with that term, which I'll be honest, I had to do a little research. That's essentially when you hear like a judgment for um, uh, emotional suffering and, and, and that kind of stuff, the, the non-economic, the stuff that isn't directly tied to, you know, healthcare expenses uh, as a result of a medical malpractice case. Um, so that would be capped at a million dollars. The debate is not new to the legislature. This bill has been around, but the new wrinkle this year is now Governor Reynolds has thrown her political weight behind the proposal. She is supporting the cap. Uh, in fact, she mentioned it during her condition of the state address. Uh, Tom, you covered, uh, you and I both covered subcommittee hearings on this. Uh, it's an interesting issue and it doesn't necessarily divide neatly, evenly down political party lines um, describe uh, the, the arguments that you heard. Uh, I, I genuinely think there's some compelling arguments on both sides of, of uh, this particular issue. It was interesting to me anyways. Yeah. So as you mentioned, this measure would uh, cap cash awards at $1 million for pain, suffering, other non-economic complications from medical malpractice suits. Subcommittee um, in the House uh, voted or moved Thursday to advance uh, the bill and, and recommend passage by the House Health and Human Services Committee. Um, Representative Heather Matson, a Democrat from Ankeny, declined to sign off on the bill. She said she needed more information about how Iowa ranks relative to other states um, in terms of medical malpractice and insurance rates. Um, uh, we heard um, 
remarks during the subcommittee hearing from opponents um, saying that um, uh, Iowa has the eighth lowest medical malpractice insurance rates in the country and that neighboring states like Nebraska and Missouri that have um, stricter caps uh, have some of the highest medical malpractice insurance rates in the country. Um, Matson is as well said she wanted information on whether Iowa's medical malpractice insurance industry is sitting on a large surplus, as some claim during the subcommittee hearing. And then she said she also wanted to see a 10-year trend line of medical malpractice jury awards in the state. Um, she said she worries about a one-size-fits-all solution, echoing concerns from opponents of the bill, arguing that this places an arbitrary limit on financial awards to Iowans who are severely injured during medical procedures and that this erodes patients' rights to uh, just compensation. Um, she, um, I guess, uh, echoed a concern or criticism of the bill um, that was also shared by Senate um, Democratic leader uh, Zach Walls of Coralville, um, who talked about that in cases where things do go, do go catastrophically wrong, there has to be the ability of a juror, uh, jury of, our, of Iowa's peers to determine what the consequences of that decision are. Um, Iowa's one of 22 states that doesn't have a cap on non-economic damages in medical malpractice uh, suits. Representatives of the medical community pointed out um, that um, that um, this is causing an issue with um, recruitment. So they say that um, without the cap, physicians are hesitant to work in Iowa, and it becomes difficult for hospitals and clinics to uh, recruit and retain physicians, and that without a cap, the cost of insurance can rise high enough to drive hospitals or clinics to close, especially smaller ones in rural areas. Um, several um, of, of those from the medical community who um, spoke or, or spoke out against the bill pointed in particular to um, uh, judgment from last year, a uh, $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered permanent brain damage um, when its head was crushed due to uh, healthcare providers using improper procedures during delivery. Um, they said that, um, again, without this cap, you know, people in the medical community, physicians, providers, um, you know, face a circumstance of where, um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, you could have an award like that, which would um, just bankrupt you. Um, and, and again, um, potentially could lead to, um, you know, providers, clinics, hospitals having to uh, having to close shop. Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, that's similar to what I heard, and it was really compelling. And um, uh, if you take um, both sides at their word uh, uh, that these costs genuinely make it difficult for recruiting physicians, that's obviously an issue. And and you worry, especially in rural areas, about hospitals closing, um, and uh, versus obviously people who've uh, been through these super traumatic uh, cases. Um, uh, it, it's a really compelling uh, debate, and I assume we're going to see it on the floor, at least for sure in the Senate, because uh, it's moved that far in the past. And it sounds like maybe it has uh, some momentum on the House now as, as well, and we may see that debate there uh, too. And as, like I said, the Governor Reynolds has indicated uh, 
in her condition in the state, she'd like to see this happen. Um, uh, so it's going to be another interesting uh, one to follow. This uh, is, um, sorry, go ahead, Jared. To- this is just a totally anecdotal, of course, but um, folks who follow uh, the journal on social media, including like people's accounts that I know are local and, and lean conservative because I have to monitor our social media pages throughout the day, are not at all happy about the the proposal of this in the least bit. I saw comment after comment from folks that were very angry about the idea of this. Yeah, and and to, to, to that point, uh, Jared, um, one of the testimonies in the Senate committee, and I don't know if he, he was, it looks like you're nodding time. I'll bet so you saw him in the house too, uh, was from Sam Clovis, who uh, very conservative Iowa Republican uh, ran for the U S Senate um, uh, back in the day, I believe had a post in the Trump administration. Forgive me if I'm uh, wrong about that. I see, I see nodding heads. Sounds like I'm right. Okay, good, good. No fake news there. Um, so uh, as conservative Iowa Republican as they come and, and he's going through an experience uh, of his own, he's confined to a, wheelchair now he's filed a medical malpractice lawsuit and and he and and a couple other uh republicans uh chip baltimore a former state legislator who was uh house chair of the judiciary committee there um both made the argument that if if a conservative is truly pro-life then they shouldn't be placing a price value a price tag on someone's life which they argue that's what these caps do so yeah just a very fascinating debate and just to, to jump on to that, interestingly, um, uh, uh, Zach Walls, um, the Democratic leader in the Senate from Coralville, um, made that exact same argument uh, to reporters during um, a gaggle on Thursday, um, saying that um, that that it, it's interesting um, that a majority he's arguing that a majority of Iowans agree that it's not the government's responsibility to put uh, economic value on life, and that Republicans used to agree with Democrats on this, um, but unfortunately, um, according to him, the issues become more 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 polarizing has started to, to change. Um, but I think it's interesting him you know echoing that argument, saying that. Um, Life is incredibly valued and precious in the state, and um, you know while we tremendously appreciate the work of the medical providers in Iowa, who in the vast majority of cases do everything um, they can do to not just protect and nurture and safeguard life, but um, you know have continued to go above and beyond, particularly as we saw um, many providers do during the the COVID nineteen pandemic, but then again, in cases where things do go catastrophically wrong, again, that there has to be this ability of um, uh, a jury of Iowans peers to determine what the consequences of that decision should be. And going off of that, the maternity in the Quad Cities, there is an interesting case in 2022 um, where there is a woman who, uh, during childbirth, um, a doctor uh, performed an episiotomy when he didn't need to, and which is a cut in the vagina to make the make it wider. And uh, she experienced a lot of pain, went home, felt like things were wrong, told the doctor, the doctor dismissed it, uh, dismissed her complaints. And, uh, and now is, um, or at least at the time of writing the article, she was expecting to have pain and was, you know, unable to do a lot of things that she normally would be able to do for the rest of her life. And she was able to win a three, $3.2 million um, award. So, you know, that's not, you know, that's more than the $1 million cap. And, and, you know, you know, how, how much is, you know, all those daily activities and, and 
how much is that worth? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like I said, it's a fascinating debate. And it's one of those uh, where, where you genuinely can really, really see the case in both sides. Um, we just, I just, as often is the case, just came off the Iowa press set uh, on this Friday and we had a- Amy Sinclair on and we asked her about this and, and I thought she gave an interesting um, response. We asked her about that argument that uh, Sam Clovis and Chip Baltimore made about placing um, a, a number of value of worth on an individual's life. And she said that she totally understood that um, argument as, as a Republican, as a conservative. Um, but she said, on the other hand, if I, I sign off on public policy um, or fail to sign off on public policy that leads to my local rural hospital closing, am I placing a value on the lives of the people in that area then by, by allowing that hospital to close? Um, I, I thought that was an interesting argument to make. And I think that's kind of where maybe the, 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 the rub is between those argument and, and whether that is, you know, it's something the hospitals are telling us that if that if this keeps getting worse it 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 it's it's making it hard to hire doctors and and could lead to hospitals uh having to close is that true i i don't know i i haven't had the chance to research those claims and see if that's happening in other states where there are caps as as tom noted there are uh i was one of the 22 without which means that there's 28 that have them um or do i have that backwards no, yeah, they're right. I was just going to add, in, in, including many states surrounding right. um, Iowa, right. um, Nebraska, Missouri, um, Wisconsin, I think. Has a cap, yep. Yeah, so, so you know, are, are the claims that the hospitals are making legitimate, or are they, you know, I think that's the, I think that's the, question that uh, it would be interesting to answer. So I kind of sound like I'm giving uh, one of us homework here. Um, moving on. Finally this week, uh, one more. We wanted to highlight a story that Tom wrote, and I wanted to highlight if it for no other reason than he deserves credit for it, because I know for a fact, without even having to ask him, that it was one of those stories that you have to ask a billion questions about just to understand it yourself before you have to turn around and explain it uh, to readers. So, so well done on you for that one. Uh, Tom, I've been there. Uh, make sure you read Tom's story if you haven't already, but the short version is that a state error in calculating property tax rollback rates is creating some chaos with cities budgets, just as they're getting into the thick of that, that budgeting process. Um, uh, Sarah, are, are they, oh, sorry, Tom had something to add first. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to throw this in here just because um, I know that I'm going to get phone calls or emails potentially from the Department of Revenue. So, so the, the, the Department of, of Revenue, um, you know, stressed that it, it wasn't so much an error on their part in calculating the property tax rollback rate as it was an oversight by lawmakers legislation in the the legislation that when they um, did their property tax reform measures um, that they forgot to um, fix the language in the code section that relates to the mathematical formula that they use for um, calculating the percentage of taxable value for different property classes. Yep, that's right. And I knew that because I have read Tom's story. So I, I apologize for the misclassification there and to, to uh, Craig Paulson and his entire 
deep there. Thank you for catching and clarifying that, uh, Tom. Okay, so now that we know even more clearly what happened, um, uh, Sarah, uh, over in the Quad Cities, are you hearing from local leaders there uh, about them now all of a sudden not knowing how to, how to, to write their budget? Yeah, I mean, we're this is this is definitely the period where um, I'm writing a lot of budget stories, Davenport, Scott County, Bettendorf, and and so um, some people have already presented budgets. Like, here's how many people we're going to hire. Here's what capital projects we're going to do. Here's how many streets we're going to fix. And um, and at least in Scott County, uh, the the budget director expected if this rollback um, legislation it, it passes to 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 adjust the rate, um, they could lose about. Uh, 1.6 million dollars just it would just vanish from their current budget. So um, so that definitely impacts you know how how much they can do in a budget. And I won't belabor the conversation since we're already going long. But um, essentially that's uh, that's money that people that especially localities were counting on, and I think are hoping that there's some kind of uh, uh, compromise so that at least for this next year there can be some kind of work around so that they don't have to suddenly cut something that they were counting on. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. And and that is interesting. There's bills. Uh, legislators have been alerted to this and there's bills that are starting to fly around and it, it'll be interesting to see what that final product looks like and how fast they're able to get it done. We talked about how fast the, uh, the, the private school funding bill goes. It feels like this one actually should get fast-tracked and, and get done as soon as possible. So we'll see uh, what kind of focus legislators put on that this week. Yeah, the only, the, the only thing that I would add to this conversation is, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what Republican lawmakers do because – um, you know, they, they said that one of their priorities for this session is going to be property tax cuts, right? <laughs> and and, and yeah. so are they going to be willing to, to, to do anything that, you know, while, while it will be a fix and help out um, cities, counties, and other, um, you know, local taxing entities with their, um, their, their, their budgeting, um, you know, are they going to be willing to, to, to do that when at the same time it can be viewed as... Um, you know, increasing the property taxes. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So something we'll be watching this week along with SSA. And uh, we hear that tort reform could be coming back and, and getting rolling this week. So that's a possible topic for next week's show as well, between medical malpractice and uh, the truckers uh, uh, insurance. Uh, 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 so all kinds of uh, the, 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 the private school bills done, but that doesn't mean the train slows down. Uh, up at the uh, Iowa Capitol. So plenty more to talk about on future editions, but that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you will receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. We got a whole bunch of new members, this uh, subscribers this week during the uh, private school bill debate. So uh, the, the, the bus is filling up. Uh, uh, jump on with the rest and join us. You can subscribe to that On Iowa Politics newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Dream Thieves will play us out this week. 
if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the show, send us a sound file. For Tom, Caleb, Sarah, Jared, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron. Thanks, everyone, for listening.